Hebrews chapter 6, before we get into it, would you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Fill us this morning with hope, hope that comes from beholding your Son, Jesus Christ, in the scriptures, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. The earliest Christians used two symbols from the sea to express their faith. Two symbols from the sea. One of those, probably most of you are familiar with, is uh, what you see often on the back of Christian cars. Well, there's no Christian cars. Cars driven by Christians. Uh, you see the fish, right? And uh, you see this in a lot of Christian paraphernalia. Uh, the fish was uh, because in Greek, the letters of the word for fish in Greek uh, are the, you know, when you expand them, read Jesus Christ, God's Son and Savior. So they employed the symbol of the fish to represent their faith in Christ. The other symbol from the sea that the early Christians use uh, is not so commonly known. And maybe you weren't aware of this, but the other symbol is the anchor, the anchor. Now an anchor, if you're unfamiliar, is what they have on ships. It's a huge uh, metal object uh, that has a vertical bar, and then at the bottom it has kind of a curving horizontal bar, and the, the purpose of the anchor, anchor is that it is attached by uh, steel cables to the ship, and when the ship is uh, stationary, they lower the anchor, and the anchor goes deep, deep down in the ocean, right to the bottom, to the ocean floor, uh, where it is lodged, and it ensures that the ship remains stable. No matter what storms or winds come, the ship will not go adrift or be ruined because of the stability given by the anchor. And the early Christians used this symbol of the anchor to symbolize Christ and the certainty of our hope that comes from the priestly work, the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this anchor was so significant to them that when they died, they often decorated their coffins with the anchor. Uh, the, the anchor was a symbol on top of Christian coffins, again, to symbolize their hope that even in death, their souls would not be drifting in eternity, but they had this confidence because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the anchor depicts our unshakable certainty of hope, a hope that is sure and certain in life, and in death. And of course, the key text, if you haven't realized it by now, the key text from which they drew the symbol of the anchor was from our text this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, where in verse 18, 19 you see, he says, we have this, a hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Well, today's passage, dear brothers and sisters, encourage us, encourages us to live with unshakable hope because our hope is grounded in God's unbreakable 
promises. And Jesus has secured our unchangeable destiny. Our hope is unshakable because God's promises are unbreakable. And in Christ, our destiny is unchangeable. So as we look at our text this morning, take a look at the passage. I'm going to show you some things here about the structure before we read the text. We have uh, this theme of hope running through the whole passage. All right, so if you look at the beginning, we're looking at verses 9 to verse 20. In verse 11, you'll see the author say, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So right at the beginning of the passage, he talks about hope. And then you come down to verse 18, and he says, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So you see hope at the beginning, hope at the end, and in between he gives us the basis for that hope, which is God's unbreakable promise. What kind of a structure is this again? A sandwich, that's right. So you get one last special sandwich before I leave on vacation, uh, a hope sandwich from Hebrews 6. And as we unpack this sandwich, you'll see three great themes running through. I want you to also pay attention to the word, uh, key word here, which is show, right? So look at verse 10. He says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. And then verse 11, he says again, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. And then when he speaks of God in verse 17, he says, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. And so as we unpack this text, we are going to see three themes. Uh, first, how we show our unshakable hope. Second, how God shows his unbreakable promise. And finally, how Jesus secures our unchangeable destiny. That's my outline. That's the structure. Let's read starting in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise." For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this 
as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So first in verses 9 to 12, how we show our unshakable hope. So you remember I told you that the job of a preacher is twofold. On the one hand, preachers are called to afflict the comfortable. And on the other hand, we are called to comfort the afflicted. So the last couple of weeks, I told you Hebrews is a sermon. We've seen this pastor afflicting the comfortable. Uh, he gave them a stern rebuke uh, for growing sluggish and for becoming immature he has given them an exhortation to press on towards maturity. And then he's given them a very stern warning that we saw last week, a warning against departing and falling away from their faith in Christ. Well, this week, he's going to comfort the afflicted. He returns to comforting the afflicted. And maybe some of you have been feeling this way even the past couple of weeks. Wow, these are some sharp words. This is a heavy rebuke. This is uh, such a sober warning. Well, that's what the Word of God does, doesn't it? It afflicts us in our, when we grow too comfortable, and then it comforts us when we are afflicted. Uh, one pastor said, a tree does not grow strong roots unless it faces sharp winds. And so sometimes the sharp winds of the Word of God blow in order to deepen our roots, and at other times we receive the nurture that we need to grow up and bear fruit. And so that's what our author is doing here. After giving them a stern warning, look at what he does in verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. You sense his pastoral heart for these people. He calls them beloved. He says, we feel sure of better things. He's just warned them sternly saying, don't fall away. Don't depart from Christ. And now he says, but I know you won't. I know you won't. He's been warning them and now he wants to encourage them. And how does he encourage them? Well, he points to ways that God's grace and their hope has been displayed in their lives. Right? Look at what he says in verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He wants them to have assurance and what does he point them to? He points them to concrete practical displays of grace in their lives that they've shown in the past and that they still show even now. Faithfulness and obedience in the Christian life is one of the great grounds for assurance, for us to be sure of what God has done. We look at our lives, look at each other's lives, and we see God's work of grace working through a person, and then we grow in our confidence and hope and certainty. Yes, I have been saved. Yes, I have been brought from darkness to light. Yes, Jesus is at work in me even now. You know, I often will deal with this as a pastor uh, you know, over the last several years, I've had many people come to me, maybe some of you even, and, and share your struggle. You know, I, I fall short. 
I sin often. Am I really a Christian? Do I really know the Lord? You know, I struggle. I feel so weak sometimes in my faith. And often the right thing to do and helpful thing to do in that circumstance is to speak to the person, dear brother, dear sister, do you see so much evidence of God's grace in your life? I see it as your pastor. Uh, have you not recognized how the Lord worked through you in this situation and how the Lord used you in that situation and how you have concretely shown love to this person and, and how God's grace has been in work in your life to bless that person. We point to the ways that God uses a person and blesses them with his grace and works through his grace in that person's life to assure them, dear brother or sister, God's work is evident in your life. And that's something we should all do with one another, in fact. In fact, I want to encourage you, after this service, don't forget this, after this service, uh, as you're going out in the courtyard maybe or in the foyer, go up to someone, another member of the church, maybe someone you haven't really talked with that much, and encourage them with evidence of grace in their life. Oh, dear brother, dear sister, I, I'm so encouraged by the way I see you sing with so much hope or by your faithfulness in prayer or by your service to the church in this area or that. We are to keep encouraging one another, reminding one another of God's grace at work within us. Why does the author do this? Why does he remind them of this? What's his goal? Look at verse 11. He wants to encourage them to show an earnestness for full assurance of hope till the end. He says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He doesn't want them just to have hope, but he wants them to have hope that grows into full assurance confidence, certainty that God is at work within them and that he will carry us to the end. This sort of earnestness and full assurance of hope, this confidence that shows in the way that we live, that's every pastor's desire. That was this pastor's desire for this congregation of Hebrew Christians your brothers and sisters, this is my desire, my earnest desire and prayer for each one of you that you would have such absolute confidence and hope in the promises of God that it would show in your life in all that you do. It's my desire for you, ECC. So how do we grow in that kind of assurance of hope? And how does it show in our lives? The author gives us two ways. He shows us two ways that unshakable hope shows in the way that we live. And the first is serving, serving. That's in verse 10. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Those who love the Lord, whose hope is in him, this hope shows in action. As Martin Luther famously said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. In the case of these people, their love for God's name was shown in their love for one another, in their commitment to one another, in their service to one another. In fact, later in Hebrews 10, we'll see that they even endured great suffering and trials and persecutions 
in order to care for one another. Some of them went to prison. Some of them lost their property. All because of their love in the Christian community. And serving the saints is one of the greatest ways that our hope shows itself practically. And God is not unjust. He sees. He will reward this love and these works that we do in love when we serve each other. Brothers and sisters, I've seen this so much in this congregation over the years, again and again. The love that you have shown for one another in serving the saints. My mind goes back to a year and a half ago to our dear brother Lamuel and our sister Sarah or two and a half years ago to our dear sister Trish Sellers and Mark, even as these dear couples walked through the suffering of cancer till the last moment, how you dear saints loved them, suffered with them, cared for them, singing hymns in the, in the hospital. You know, Sarah, as she went back to Pakistan, she said, I will never forget the love and care that ECC showed for me and my husband even in our hardest days. Brothers and sisters, I've seen your love and your hospitality and care for our apprentices. Every year, as we've been through four years now of uh, uh, the apprenticeship, as they've come in, these brothers have come in, you have cared for them, you have served them, you have ministered to them and sent them out from here in a manner worthy of God. God sees your faithfulness. God sees your faithfulness serving in the ministries of our church. You know, some of you serving in the nursery, changing diapers. Some of you serving in children's ministry, teaching our children the gospel. Others serving here like uh, on the overhead or greeting people outside. God sees. He knows. He will not forget. God sees the unseen ways that you serve. People serving behind the scenes on various committees or in various administrative tasks that no one even gives a thought to, but the Lord knows. He knows when you wake up early. He knows the sacrifices you've made for His name. He knows when you've visited someone in the hospital. He knows when you've prayed through the members' directory. He sees that faithfulness, dear brothers and sisters. He sees your hospitality and your love inviting people into your home, inviting people into your lives. You know, when I think of these hidden acts of service that the Lord sees, I, one, of the, one thing that comes to mind, I think of our elders' wives. You know, how faithfully our elders, especially our lay elders, serve week after week as shepherds of this congregation. And, and it's very visible. They meet, they pray from here, they lead in different ways. But have you ever thought about their wives and the faithfulness of these sisters, dear sisters and women of God who have taken on a load themselves in order to enable their husbands to serve you as shepherds. The Lord sees, the Lord knows. I think of four precious sisters who will be leaving this congregation in the next month and all the unseen ways that they have served. Our sister Rhonda Hearns, uh, Gemma Frondosa, Catherine Erpen, our sister Trish Sellers for years, for two decades now, serving ECC in so many ways. You know, uh, I, I remember um, last year, uh, one of our elders, uh, Pastor Edwin Orogo, had a surgery. It was a major heart surgery, and they'd grafted veins from his leg. Uh, and he came home from the hospital, uh, recovering. He had major wounds on his legs. And I reached out to his wife, our sister Eileen, 
and, and just asked, is there any way that the church can uh, care for you and help you at this time? And, and she said, uh, you know, uh, actually, praise God, uh, Gemma is here, and, and she's been dressing his wounds. Unseen love and service for the saints. Praise God. He is not unjust to forget these things, and he will reward our hope shown in action. That's how we show our hope. And maybe you're here this morning and you've grown weary one way or the other. Maybe the trials and afflictions of the past couple of years or whatever is going on in your life has knocked you off from faithful service. Friends, brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you this morning. Keep on. Keep on. We desire each one of you, verse 11, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish and maybe some of us have grown sluggish. Don't be sluggish, but be an imitator of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Press on, keep on showing that hope in serving the saints. What is the second way that we show our hope? First was serving, the second is imitating. And that's here in verse 12. He says, we want you not to be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And what the author is calling us to here is to look at great godly examples and imitate their faith, imitate their patience and trust in God's promises. You know, that's all of the Christian life. That's how we grow as Christians. All of the Christian life is a life of imitation, is a life of following others as they follow Christ of looking at someone who's further along than you in godliness and the knowledge of God and then imitating their faith. That's, that's how we live as Christians and follow Jesus, by following others who follow Jesus. And here the author is calling us, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In the very next paragraph, he talks about Abraham and Abraham's faith. And we'll see in just a bit, Abraham trusted God. He was patient and trusted in God's promises. His, his life went up and down. And of course, he struggled and failed at times and stumbled. He faced great trials of uncertainty. But he believed that God would fulfill his promise. He lived a life of faith and patience, hope in the future. And sometimes people think, oh, it's your best life now. It's not your best life now. Your best life is later. And in the in-between... You need to live by faith and patience, brothers and sisters. And we ought to do this as we read our Bibles. We see great examples of this faith and patience in the life of Abraham or in the life of Joseph who trusted God in the pit and in the prison. In the life of David who trusted God as he was facing many, many trials and great uncertainty. Or in the life of Job or the Apostle Paul as we read our Bibles. Look at the examples of faith. Just go home and read Hebrews 11 and you'll see the examples of faith and patience that we are called to imitate. Or you could spend the summer learning to imitate great heroes of the faith from church history. The 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit's work through His church is always a fertile ground to find role models to imitate. So I encourage you to pick up Christian biography. I'm sure if you go to the bookstore, I've already talked with Annie, and there are wonderful works of Christian biography that, that she can uh, share with you, and you can pick, uh, pick one up and read it over the summer. I'm planning to read this summer uh, a book called The Apostle to Islam. The, it's the life of Samuel Zwemer, who was the first missionary to the Arabian Peninsula. 
and he came to this region at the end of the 19th century. He established the American Mission Hospital in Bahrain. He was a fervent evangelist, fluent in Arabic, constantly sharing the gospel with our Muslim friends. And even in his first few years in Bahrain, he faced great trials. Two of his children died. And if you go to Bahrain, their graves are still there. And inscribed on those graves are the words, Worthy is the Lamb to receive treasures. He served God here in Egypt, in Iraq, all the way to Indonesia, preaching the gospel. You could look for other biographies. I highly commend the series by John Piper called The Swans Are Not Silent. Beautiful pictures of faith and patience for us to imitate. Or... You could also grow and show your hope by imitating great pictures of hope that you see in this very congregation. Later in Hebrews chapter 13, the author advises these people to imitate their elders, their shepherds. And I think of the godly brothers that God has given us here in this church as elders of this congregation whom you can imitate and strive to be like. I think of our brother Negusi and our brother Anwar who have faithfully served God patiently for years and years in this church as members, then as elders for the last several years and are being sent out from this congregation to serve the Lord vocationally in the nations. Imitate their faith. So this is how we show our unshakable hope in our lives, by serving and by imitating. But what is the root of this hope? Why is it that we can continue on hoping, trusting in faith and in patience, trusting God's promises, trusting in a future that we do not yet see? Well, it's because God has made His promises that are unbreakable. And He has shown us the unbreakable nature of His promise. That's why we have unshakable hope. Because God's promise is unbreakable. And that leads to our second main theme in this text. This is the meat in the center of the hope sandwich this morning. We saw how we are to show unshakable hope. Second, we see how God shows his unbreakable promise. And this is in the section from verses 13 to 18. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying... Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So the author here, he's just talked about imitating those who through faith and and patience inherit the promises. And immediately he takes us back to Abraham and the life of Abraham. Abraham is the preeminent example in the Old Testament of faith and patience to inherit God's promise. And you've got to remember, these are Hebrew Christians, and Abraham was a very significant figure uh, for the Jews, for the Hebrews. Uh, Pastor John Fulmer of the Evangelical Christian Church of Dubai says, Abraham was to the Hebrews like Sheikh Zayed is to the UAE. He was the father of the nation. He was held up as an example and someone to imitate and revere. 
And if you read the story of Abraham's life, the author focuses specifically here on Genesis chapter 22, but you'll see the many twists and turns of Abraham's life starting in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. He gives him the word of command, go from your land. And he gives him the word of promise, I will bless you and in you many nations will be blessed. In Genesis chapter 15, God comes and makes a covenant with Abraham. He ratifies his promises, establishes his promises on covenant, on the basis of a covenant. That's a binding agreement that God makes with this man. And he says, I will multiply your offspring, Abraham, so that they will be as many as the stars of the heaven in number, where you won't be able to count. And I promise to give you your offspring will inherit this land. And Abraham believes God's promise and is counted righteous. Then again, God comes to him in Genesis 17, and and the promise is repeated. Surely I will bless you. I will multiply you. And he changes his name. Abraham's name was originally Abram, which meant exalted father. Now God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. So even in the original promise to Abraham, it is clear that this promise doesn't just refer to physical offspring, but offspring from all nations. That Abraham's family is going to consist of people from every tribe and tongue and nation who are blessed in him, who will be added to his family by faith. And this is pointing forward, brothers and sisters, to us, the church, people from all nations who have trusted in the offspring of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have, after that, this very, very significant incident in Genesis chapter 22. You've seen the trajectory of Abraham's life and the graph of his life. Yes, he went up and down. He had to wait patiently in faith. It took years for God's promise to be fulfilled. Everything seemed impossible. This man was 100 years old. His wife was 90 years old. They were waiting for two decades for this promise of a son to be fulfilled. And then finally... The promise is fulfilled and Isaac is born. And this is the son of the promise. This is the one through whom the line will come. And God's promise would be fulfilled. And then all of a sudden in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham. And he commands him to take Isaac, his only son, his beloved son, the son of promise, the one on whom all of God's promises depend. And God tells him, take Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice to me on this mountain. Now, God, the one true God, our God of the Bible, detests human sacrifice. There were many pagan religions at the time of the Old Testament where people were offering uh, child sacrifice. God hates that. If you read later in the law, he forbids that and calls it an abomination. God detests child sacrifice. So why does he do this then? Well, he's not intending for Abraham to actually sacrifice Isaac. He is testing Abraham's faith so that Abraham's faith in God's promise will be proved. And he is establishing a pattern. God is establishing a pattern where he will deliver Isaac from death. And God himself would provide a substitute to be the sacrifice which points forward to what God has done in our Lord Jesus Christ, where he provided his own son to be our sacrifice, to be our substitute, who died on the cross to take the penalty for our sin. And Abraham goes up to this mountain with his son, Isaac, 
the son of promise. Hebrews 11 tells us Abraham believed God's promise with such certainty, such assurance, he believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. And so he was ready to obey. He had seen over years and years God's faithfulness in so many trials and so much uncertainty. When everything seemed impossible, he has seen God's faithfulness to his promise. And Abraham trusts God. And it tells us through his faith and patience, he obtained the promise. He obtained the promise first when Isaac was born against all odds from a woman who is over 90 years old. He obtained the promise again when Isaac is not put to death, but God provides a substitute and provides us a picture of resurrection from the dead. Through his faith and patience, Abraham received God's promise. And then God responds to that in Genesis 22 by doing something amazing, unthinkable, unfathomable, something you cannot even imagine. God makes an oath to fulfill his promise. He swears. Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. God swears by himself. He makes an oath. What is an oath? Why an oath? What does an oath do? Well, an oath assures you that someone is speaking the truth, right? It gives you a guarantee. Someone says, well, I'm willing to swear that I'm telling you the truth, that my words are true. And of course, in the human realm, oaths are very significant. That's what the text says here. It says in verse 16, people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation, an oath has great significance. This is why in courts of law, and some of you have watched courtroom dramas, people will say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. In the ancient world, to pronounce an oath was to call a deity, God, as your witness and as the enforcer of, your, of the oath. In other words, you're saying, if I break my promise, if I am lying, may God be my judge. If what I'm saying to you is a lie... May I die? That's what an oath communicates. And your God is making an oath. And it's, it's very different from our oaths, right? We make oaths because we are untrustworthy. And, and so when the pressure gets high and when you're in a hard spot, you're tempted to tell a lie, and so an oath kind of works to guarantee your trustworthiness. God is fully trustworthy. He doesn't need to make this oath. But he makes this oath, he stoops down and makes this oath to Abraham so that Abraham would be more certain and more assured of God's promise. God's oath cannot be broken because God cannot lie. God is truth. He is the very source of truth. Again and again we're told in the scriptures, God is not a man that he could lie. It's his very nature to be truth. And God will not break his oath because God cannot die. God is life. He is the very source of life and he is the one who gives life to all things. And so because he cannot lie and he cannot die, his oath is certain and his promise is sure. And guess what, brothers and sisters? Here's the good news. This oath was not just for Abraham. No. This was not just for Abraham up on the mountain. No, when God made this oath, he guaranteed this promise. Not just to Abraham but to you and me. 
His oath is unto us. Look at verses 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Who are the heirs of the promise? All who are children of Abraham by faith. All who have trusted in Christ belong to the family of Abraham. We are heirs of this promise. And so God wanted to show us more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. And so he placed this oath, swearing by himself, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What are those two unchangeable things? Well, on the one hand, you see it right there. We see the unchangeable character of his purpose, his promise is unchangeable. He will fulfill his plan. And on the other hand, what is the second unchangeable thing that gives us confidence? It's the oath. It's his oath, right? Think about it. With an oath, you swear by someone higher than yourself. But there is no one higher than God. So when God swears, he swears by himself. He puts his own life on the line. He goes the extra mile. He didn't have to do this. His word is sure. But he goes the extra mile. He commits himself by an oath to guarantee to you and me the fulfillment of his promise. Friends, do you see how important this is to God? He wants you to know. He wants you and me to be sure that nothing will separate us from his love. He wants us to be confident that he will fulfill his promises, that he will raise us from the dead, that he will bring us to our heavenly home, that all things shall work together for our good and for his glory. Think about the confidence that this gives us. Think how important it is to God Almighty. God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who spoke and created all things, created this universe, the one who put the stars in place, the one by whom this universe is held together, the one who fashions every fiber of our being, every molecule of this earth is held together by his power. That God, God Almighty, our creator, swore by himself, putting his unchangeable nature, his infinite life on the line, saying, I will fulfill my promise to you in Christ. Friends, our assurance, our confidence does not depend on us. Sometimes we think, oh, if I just had more faith, if my faith was just strong enough, or if I could just drum up a little bit more, you know, in me to, to do more, to act more. And I want us to see in this text, it's telling us that our assurance, our confidence, our hope doesn't depend on us or how strong our faith is or how stable our faith is. No, we go up and down, we stumble. But all of it, our confidence depends on the promises of the perfect, faithful, almighty, infinite, unchangeable God of heaven and earth. His promises are unbreakable. His word is unchangeable. And so our hope is unshakable. So I want to ask you this morning, where is your trust? Where is your confidence? When life gets hard, when things get rough, and they do get very rough, and when the trials come on every side, are you trying to rely on your own strength? Are you, or are you holding on to the unbreakable promise of the one who holds heaven and earth in his hand 
and will hold you to the very end. He has sworn to keep his promise. And this, brothers and sisters, this, my dear friends, is our anchor. This is our anchor. Do you see that? Verse 18. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, by his unchangeable promise and his unbreakable oath, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, that is the hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And we hold on and we need to keep holding on because you see the fulfillment of this promise, the completion of this hope is future, right? He uses the words heirs. He calls us heirs of the promise. And the language of inheritance, the language of heirship means that something is guaranteed, but it's not yet fulfilled. You got to wait for it. It's guaranteed as our inheritance, but we're still waiting. We're still waiting. But we can keep on waiting confidently. Because you see, that's our third theme here, the, the bottom slice of our sandwich. We've seen how we show our unshakable hope. We've seen how God shows his unbreakable promise. And third, finally, we see how Jesus secures our unchangeable destiny. How Jesus secures our unchangeable destiny, our future is certain. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, verse 19, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We've talked a lot about this hope that we have. But what are we hoping for ultimately? What's the end of our hope? What's the end result? What is the promise of God that is so certain? Well, it's the promise of a heavenly home. It's the promise of the heavenly city that will one day come down. If you read Hebrews 11, it tells you, you know, Abraham wasn't just looking to some physical piece of real estate that would be fulfilled in the nation state of Israel. No, Abraham was looking to something far greater in God's promise. He was looking forward to the city whose architect and builder is God. He was looking forward to the heavenly city in which we will all one day dwell. Our final destination, where we will see our God face to face, where we will see our Lord Jesus Christ. He will wipe every tear from our eyes and we will live with him forever in glory, in his presence. And as we wait for that goal in hope, this hope is the anchor that stabilizes our soul that our Lord Jesus Christ has gone there before us and is making a way for us to follow. Do you see that? Jesus, verse 20, has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Our Lord Jesus, God the Son, who took on flesh, he died for us, poured out his blood on the cross, taking upon himself the penalty we deserve for our sins, rose from the dead victorious, ascended into heaven, and has entered into the holy of holies, the heavenly holy of holies, into the heavenly city, into the holiest place in the immediate presence of God, and he is there as our high priest and as our forerunner. 
So to say that Jesus is there as our high priest, we've talked about this many times, is to say that he is constantly interceding for us. In other words, day and night, Jesus is there in our future home, even now, praying for you, dear brother or sister. I love how Joel Beakey speaks about the intercessory work of Christ. He says, imagine uh, the seconds hand of a clock, and with each tick, Jesus is praying for you. Tick, Jesus is praying for you. Tick, Jesus is praying for you. Oh, I'm struggling, I'm facing trials. Jesus is praying for you. I'm being tempted. Jesus is praying for you. He is praying for you. And not only that, he is our forerunner. What does that mean? That he's a forerunner on our behalf. It means that his presence there now is the guarantee of your presence there in the future. The forerunner is the one who goes ahead so that everyone else can follow. He's blazed away for you to follow, for you and I to be there. And this is guaranteed. We will be there. And that guarantee of us following him, dear brothers and sisters, that is the anchor, that is the hope that stabilizes our souls. You know, the storms of this world are hard. So hard. As one person said, who can escape from those inward trials, troubles, from temptations, darkness, sin? Every storm would be too hard for a ship without cables or anchors. And you have this beautiful picture here. You think about the anchor of a ship. It goes down, down, downward, deep into the deep recesses of the ocean, right to the ocean floor. Our anchor goes up, up, up into heaven, into the heavenly holy of holies, so that it is in the very presence of God. Our hope is invisible to this world, but it reaches into the deepest place of heaven. Nothing in this world can touch it, shake it, or break it. If you're here this morning and you don't have this hope, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to call you and plead with you to come to him. The text says to flee for refuge to Jesus. You see, we're all sinners and we have sinned against a holy God. We face many storms and trials in this life. And yes, maybe you have experienced that and you feel this instability constantly in your life. Well, one day we will face ultimate ruin if we don't have this anchor. Because one day we will face judgment for our own sins. But God in his mercy has sent his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died the perfect substitutionary death on the cross to take the penalty of sins upon himself so that all who turn from their sin and flee to him for refuge will have this eternal hope and anchor. So I want to call you, dear non-Christian friend, flee from your sin, flee for refuge to the only one who can stabilize your soul in life and death. You know, as I've been reading this text this week, my mind has repeatedly gone back to nine years ago uh, when I was finishing up my master's degree in seminary. Nishika was expecting our second child and suddenly we were hit with waves of trials. We were driving uh, 
to another city, uh, to a conference, a missions conference where I was going to speak. And Nishika was 10 weeks pregnant. And on the drive, suddenly she hemorrhaged in the car. And when we got to our destination, we didn't end up uh, at the conference. Instead, we were in the hospital uh, in you know, a new city. And she continued to hemorrhage and bleed for the next several weeks, seven weeks and to be precise. And the doctors told us, you know, you can expect to lose the child anytime. So every day, waking up, wondering if today is going to be the day that we have this miscarriage. Uh, at the same time, you know, I was getting ready to finish my uh, master's training and begin a PhD, and a few things happened, few circumstances that led to complete uncertainty about that. Our, our source of finances was gone, and we were thrown into financial uncertainty. We were thrown into uncertainty about the future. I didn't even know whether we're gonna, what, what are we going to do next month. And in the midst of that, Nishika's grandmother died, uh, whom was dearly beloved to her in India, and as far as we know, did not know the Lord. And many of you know this, and I've shared before, but I sometimes struggle with bouts of depression. And I think that season was a prolonged season of deep, deep depression for months. Maybe the most crushing uh, season of depression I've ever faced. And every day just waking up with darkness and gloom, just wondering, how am I going to get through another day? Lord, we need your grace just one more day. And in all of that uncertainty, in all of that darkness, one song kept us going. We kept singing in our home and kept repeating to ourselves, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And at the end of those seven weeks, we went to the doctor and he said, the hemorrhage is gone and I have no idea how this happened. And so when our daughter was born, we named her Petra, which means rock. And her middle name is Hope. Friends, no matter what trials come our way, no matter what challenges we face, in every high and stormy gale, our anchor holds within the veil. We have an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast when the billows roll, fastened on the rock that cannot be moved, grounded in the Savior's deep love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your unbreakable promises and our unshakable hope in Christ our Lord. Amen.